0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am sitting down again today with my friend, codenamed Lester, and we're going to continue our journey into this excellent book by Paul Yi, The Twilight of Gold. Um, but I thought, you know, we were talking offline a little bit that maybe we'd start with some questions you had actually about the the Snyder series, the the series I did with Jeff Snyder, rather.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This, I just want to mention one, this is one small correction from last time we were talking, I was talking about the period of bank restriction of the Bank of England. I just, I think I got the dates wrong. If the actual mm-hmm. period was 1797 to 1819, in case I got those dates wrong, I'd look that up. Mm-hmm. Um, you and Snyder got into a really, really productive vein about the public's ability to intervene as an information filter versus the central bank and the Committee of Central Bankers being the arbiter, ver, our final arbiters of monetary policy. And it it really relates back to this book and to a lot of um, revelations I've had about the value of Bitcoin. Um, there's a quote from this book, Paul Yee pulls from Montague Norman's personal letters. Montague Norman was the um, governor of the Bank of England during a lot of the critical... Um, episodes that we're talking about, and he wrote to another central banker that it must surely be the concern of all to avoid, so far as possible, disturbing fluctuations in the value of gold. I do not believe that gold in circulation can safely be regarded as a reserve that can be made available in case of need. And I think even in times of abundance, hoarding is bad because it weakens the command of the central bank over the monetary circulation and hence over the purchasing power of the monetary unit. Pao Yi, in the book, he italicizes the last clause and I sort of punched it with my delivery, but it weakens the command of the central bank over monetary circulation. And um, there's a line from Rothbard, which isn't necessarily about about, money specifically, but he writes that it's clear that the greater the proportion of old stock to new production, meaning if there's a larger ratio, if the old stock is larger in the ratio of new production, then the greater will tend to be the importance of the supply of the old possessors compared to that of the new producers. The tendency will be for old stock to become more important, the greater the durability of the good. Well, like looking at these two quotes side by side, the possessors of the old stock then become the ultimate information filter and the possessors of the old stock, I'm sort of combining wording from these two quotes, the possessors of the old stock take command over the monetary circulation and hence over the purchasing power of the monetary unit. And so Bitcoin is the first money where The possessors of the old stock dictate the purchasing power of the unit, not the manufacturers of the new stock. And that is kind of the whole point. It's a mind-blowing point. And it's it's, it's an ability that it has been the project of governments and central bankers for 100 years to take that away from the possessors of the old stock. And Bitcoin gives it back to them. So your Snyder quote made me think of all that.
0: This is I'm I'm actually struggling to get my head around this. So, making the case that gold circul gold in circulation cannot be made available as it weakens the command of the central bank, and then. The second quote is saying that basically the holders of of the old money, I guess, then have have a disproportionate influence on the purchasing power.
1: Well, think of the think of the Rothbart quote not in terms of money, but in terms of any good, any commodity or any good. Mm, okay. So if you if if the old stock is the majority of what exists in the market, and 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 his and his caveat is the greater the durability of the good. Mm. Then the following is true, which is that the greater the proportion of old stock to new production, meaning the higher the stock to flow ratio. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. that's what he's talking about. Yep. The higher the stock to flow ratio, the greater the durability of the good. Then the tendency will be for the old stock to be more important in terms of determining the purchasing power of the good, whatever the good is. Right. And right, right. Bitcoin is the most durable, it's information. So it's, it's the most durable good ever created. So yeah. assuming infinite durability and an infinite stock to flow ratio, it means that the possessors have the ultimate ability to filter and intervene and dictate the pricing of the good. And the people who create the new units have almost no ability to dictate the pricing.
0: Wow! So it is the this is the ultimate land grab, effectively. Totally. Because you know the yeah the quicker you acquire territory or sit down at this game of musical chairs, if you want to use that analogy, like the more you, it's a race, right? You benefit like that. That's the goal of the race. Actually, is to take as much territory as possible.
1: Um and hold it. And ho- the only corollary and is it. and to yeah. hold it. And yes. you know, that's that's something I struggle with a lot is I just I just compulsively acquire Bitcoin whenever I can. I think sometimes to my own detriment. I I, 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 <laughs> I think the goal is to make it to the other side of whatever whatever this temporary if we're at the end of like a hundred year credit cycle, if we're at the end of the US dollar the reserve currency, and if we're headed towards a dollar inflation, then whether you think that the central bank is capable of producing inflation or not, no matter what you think, what we are in store for is volatility.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the goal is to make it to the other side of that. And I don't know that I'm like good at strategically thinking about that, but I do think that the, the that whether I make it or not, the goal is to have as much Bitcoin as possible because whoever holds it and it's spread around, spread out. I mean, it's spread out among a lot more people than, Central banker than there are central bankers. And so it's just mm-hmm. the largest cohort is determining the purchasing power of that money.
0: Yeah. It, you know, the stock to flow thing has gotten slightly beat up, I think, in Bitcoin circles in relation to the price modeling and projecting and all of that. But the quotes you're laying out here, they revisit really the essential nature of stocks and flows. And I encourage anyone that hasn't read about systems theory or systems thinking. I think there's actually a book called thinking in systems that describes, uh, how all complex systems are effectively stocks and flows, right? We're mapping this, you know, if if reality is just all of these different patterns interacting with one another, the best way to, uh, detangle the complexity is to evaluate them through this lens of stocks and flows, like what is static and what is dynamic? and then what are the feedback loops? And it seems to me, like in the case of gold, that it is something that is what caused gold to become money. It was the most stable or predictable or um unchangeable, immutable substance we could we could use, basically. Um, and I think that framing is very useful for evaluating Bitcoin is something that's just, it's taken the properties that gold approximated and it effectively perfected them. Like you, you mentioned yeah. durability, I've laid out the other monetary properties, but I think, and, and just to put a button on it, it's like systems thinking, this is probably the most sophisticated form of thinking we have as a species. <laughs> I mean, this is looking at the world and the universe and reality as a complex system. Um and recognizing that everything influences everything else. So whatever is least influenced becomes like a safe, the safe strategy or the shelling point, if you will. Mm-hmm. So
1: least influenced is a good, could be another good property of money. Mm-hmm. And I think that the 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 stock to flow, I think stock to flow is just incredibly important. And I think you can't put too much emphasis on the plan B pricing model. But I think that that pricing model, if you don't take it literally, I think it expresses a deep fundamental truth, not necessarily of Bitcoin, but there's a reason why it applies to roughly gold and, and Bitcoin and diamonds and silver. I think that, that that curve, that the basic shape of that curve is actually a threshold test. If a good or commodity in the minds of the public qualifies as a money, then it roughly falls into the shape of that curve. Mm -hmm. And if a good or a unit of something doesn't like just pass that test deeply psychologically as money, then it's just not going to obey that curve.
0: Yeah. And that's exactly what fiat
1: is doing, right? It violates the curve. Yeah, totally. Totally. (laughs) um Um, so then i just want to also i don't know if if you're listening i don't know if you picked up on something that i was sort of reflecting on thinking back to what we've talked about so far but there's somewhat of a inherent contradiction that's going to get even more pronounced the more we get into the the underlying mechanism of the gold standard which is that on the one hand as I said in the very beginning, the gold standard was effectively the sterling standard and the British dominated the sterling standard for their own gain. that's how they survived. That was like their main export was controlling the gold standard through the sterling standard. And at the same time the gold standard was a universal standard that enforced discipline and then these extremely dynamic trading conditions internationally that were competitive and there was wage and price flexibility, there was an international, um, specialization, and international, uh, pali has got a term for it, the, um, well, now I've forgotten this word, this term, but it was the in, international specialization of labor. And um, so you have this like international system and then the system that's dominated by the British, those things seem to be in contradiction with one another. And I, and I think that that is actually true, but both are true, they are in contradiction and they are both true at the same time. I think the gold standard was like this force that the English harnessed for their own benefit. But the point is that it could just as easily have been enforced from multiple market centers and not just one single dominant center. Mm -hmm. And Palli addresses this specifically in the book and he actually uses the word decentralized, he's writing this in 1968, late, late 60s, that, the gold standard could have functioned in a decentralized manner as long as credit flows freely between markets and is reactive to interest rate and exchange rate differentials. And so it's smoothing those out by capital mm-hmm. flowing back and forth. So it, the gold standard does not require one sovereign entity to control it. It just grew up that way for a lot of reasons, a lot of idiomatic reasons that that the deposit banking evolved in England and didn't involve in other countries. You know, there was, there was gold in other countries, but people just didn't deposit it at banks. So there's nowhere to go to borrow it. And mm-hmm. so the English just happened to develop this system. But if if you're feeling like that there's a contradiction, you're right. That is something of a contradiction, but I think it's a contradiction that is a productive contradiction that just worked. And it ultimately is actually why the, the bank of England, they, why they failed ultimately in 1931. So we just wanted to highlight that in case anyone's picked up on it. And
0: that's useful. I, um, just to jump in on that, so the idiomatic reasons really are the the technological, what I often call the technological realities of gold. Right? It doesn't. It's not portable, frankly. So it makes sense that we introduced. Uh, an institution to augment that. That's effectively what the bank is, right? It's like, let's put all the gold in one place. We'll then issue, we'll abstract that gold into a paper token, and then we'll trade the token. Everyone has a call option via the token to get the gold anytime. So that that coheres a a shelling point, frankly, like a game theoretic um, dynamic equilibrium what, what is the, the contradiction then is that although we coalesce around one money, we don't need one central authority to facilitate that standard. Is that what you're getting at?
1: I'm, I think the contradiction is that it's this universal standard that enforces discipline and creates like a really healthy there is no one winner money, like um international competition like uh trade competition um that that's it's truly a system that is governed by like natural law and puts everyone on an equal playing field Mm -hmm. and yet was dominated and controlled by one country right that's the contradiction
0: yeah and again back to the physicality right it's because violence works to extract gold that has this; um, it creates incentives basically to be an imperialist.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a there's a tangent there, but I think another reason that England was able to hold on to at least the, the contention of another another writer, Marcello Dechico, in his book um, uh, "Money and Empire," is, is his, his contention is that England was actually able to hold on to their advantage because they subjugated India. And forced India to take Mm -hmm. all of their exports, even though they lost international share to to other highly productive countries, they they were managed to to sort of exploit the entire continent of India to take their outdated goods and for India to store their gold with the Bank of England. And Mm. um, it was a subjugation of that continent, which gave England another advantage for another extra, I don't know, 20, 30 years.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So, Britain effectively, clearly, they were they colonized India um, and then economically subjugated them. Did did that mean gold was flowing out of India into Britain during that time? Yeah, Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess both forcibly and via market mechanisms. Then,
1: yeah, I mean it's. uh, I mean. I only read one book on it and mm-hmm. it's not the entire book but it was um you know um it seems like Brits were put in charge of all of the major economic institutions in India when they were a colony and so all of their reserves they held um English banking reserves and then their gold was they didn't hold their own gold right and they didn't they they were like a a resource extractive country that England took the benefits of those resources and then forced, well, you know, I don't know exactly if it was the point of a gun, but essentially forced India to buy British manufactured goods. Right. Um, even though they weren't the best goods on the market anymore.
0: Right. That That's very interesting. Because So you mentioned that the Brits put themselves in charge of Indian economic institutions. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a cultural obsession with gold in India and I can't help, but think that that is an echo of this, this game being played. Right.
1: It's interesting. I I wonder, I do, I do wonder, I hadn't put those two things together. There's another, there's another thing, which is that in 1970, the bank of France suspended specie payments for for paper currency. And so like because the the other major center of gold like sort of bowed out of the game, suddenly England really had control. They, if you wanted bullion, you had to go to England. So they're kind of given this monopoly. And because they're given this monopoly, it was like in their best interest to maintain the price of gold, like to maintain the and and the, and the best way for them to do it was to hoard as much of it as possible so that they could dictate the price of it when they wanted to serve their benefit so again like this theme that we've talked talked touched on a bunch of times which is that i think that price the the effect of price stability is to is to benefit the the person who's in control of the money Mm. that's like sort of the ultimate the ultimate manifestation of price stability is it. It gives it a tremendous advantage to the person who's like holding on to the hoard.
0: Yeah. The the and this is contrary to central bank induced price stability. This would be more like naturally emergent price stability. In that, when a money that emerges naturally has the least variant in supply, like of course other things become priced in it, which as it's, uh, liquidity, you know, by definition, almost as money is the most liquid or most marketable asset, um, prices denominated in a naturally emergent money will naturally be the most stable available, but it doesn't mean they'll ever be fixed.
1: Right. And I, and I think actually I've been, I've been thinking about, you know, you and I have been messaging about this for a while. I've been trying to think for last couple of years, do, does, does price stability exist in nature? And we've yeah. touched on a couple of times in this conversation. Yeah. And I, I would say, no, yeah. I actually think that the most stable price force we have in the universe right now, and this is someone else tweeted this. I'd have to find it. it. wasn't, it was an expression of my thought, but I didn't come up with the wording, but it is. Hashes per kilowatt per set is perhaps the most stable pricing force on the planet, in nature, at this moment. And it's kind of the only metric you really need to think about. So Hashes per, per kilo joule or per kilowatt hour, per okay. satoshi. Per, per second. Step. I think you have to add another per in there. Hashes <laughs> per second, per kilowatt hour, per satoshi.
0: <laughs> I'm doing the decimal in my mind now. It's like, whoa, that's uh Okay, can you unpack that a little bit? That's interesting, but I'm not... I think there's some unpacking there.
1: Well, like, um, um, the, the number of hashes that you get per kilowatt hour has been sort of leveling off and that is not inherently a stable number, but it has been becoming more stable, um, just because we're reaching like a terminus in terms of how efficient ASICs can get now that we're Mm -hmm. at, you know, a hundred plus, um, Terahash machines and um so the number of hashes, I mean, the, the whole game of mining is I want to get more hashes than the next person, but with the exact same amount of electricity. Mm-hmm. So that's the game is hashes per kilowatt, which are really measured in hashes per kilowatt per second because everyone's it's it's time based. It's not like how many hashes forever, period. You don't stop. So it's you're competing every second with other miners. So it's hashes per second per kilowatt. And that is just like like microprocessors being, I don't want to repeat myself because I know we touched on this briefly before, but like microprocessors being the most complex machine that civilization makes, like we're at the limit. And then we're also at the lower bound of the price of electricity. Like we found the cheapest electricity. And so Mm. the cost, so you have hashes per second per kilowatt per sat is like something that is constantly being maxed out. And then if, if, if like say half the hash power drops off the globe, well, then there's a self-correcting mechanism Mm. where the difficulty goes down. And so that number like immediately returns to its most maximum efficient number. Because the difficulty goes down and so the productivity of the remaining hash power actually remains almost exactly the same. And if you, if you wanted to create sort of like a monetary pricing unit that captured the greatest stability that exists where the complexity and the productive capacity of civilization intersects with the natural world. But had some sort of quote unquote stability, it actually would either be the Bitcoin price itself, or it would be a pricing unit that is an expression of hashes per kilowatt hour per second per sat. Because that actually will be the stablest thing. If you took if you took a if you could make a, a, a multiple out of hashes. Per kilowatt hour per second and divided it by the the number of sats in existence, mm-hmm. you would actually, I think, get like a a, a number that is that is that is moving on a trend, mm-hmm. but is on a continuous and kind of stable trend. And is actually the only sort of stable pricing mechanism we have in nature.
0: It's you know, I don't want to. <laughs> This word "profound" gets thrown around a lot, but that seems quite profound to me. It's almost like a measure of the Darwinian competition per unit of energy per unit of time, something Mm -hmm. like that. It's Mm -hmm. like a pure measure of work or force or um, wow. That's very interesting, and it even
1: it does it. It does. There is room for for feedback. The, f- the feedback on the value of Bitcoin actually, the the, the, the amount, you, you could say, well, how does the, it, it it's independent of the dollar price or the fiat price of Bitcoin, but it's not because the higher the fiat price of Bitcoin, the more that society's resources go into making microprocessors. And so,
0: mm.
1: you know, microprocessors like are like um, an index on the productive capacity of what we can do and mm-hmm. the higher the price, the more that, the more those get built specifically for Bitcoin. And so you get more hashes per kilowatt hour per second. So I don't know. I, I, I've always felt like there's like, if there was like a a really robust, like um, market for hash rate, hash rate based derivatives, it actually might mm. become a stable pricing unit for the future. Yeah. Because Bitcoin really does swing a lot based on demand. Yeah. And this is actually, a concept for pricing that just doesn't change very much because of Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment.
0: Yeah, It's really interesting. I've, you know, I haven't looked at this in a while, but when I looked at hash rate derivatives, this was probably a year ago, I think hash rate was like three X the vol of Bitcoin spot. Mm -hmm. It's it's extremely volatile. Um, And an issue faced by miners is that they can lock in long-term Power purchase agreements, you know, long-term cost curves, effectively, but you, to really get this to to get Bitcoin mining to the level of u- utility uh, level investment flows, it needs to stabilize its revenue curve as well. So it needs a mature derivatives market for for hash, basically. You know, um, so that's that's interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean if you if you make a spreadsheet for yourself and you map out what you think is the compound annual growth rate of hash rate, and then what's the growth rate of Bitcoin's price? So if you so if hash rate's going up, then your yield on your miner is going down. So like they work, mm-hmm. they balance each other. Yeah. So if you I made the spreadsheet because so I was like looking at the economics of mining, and I'd been working on this spreadsheet for like a couple of weeks, and it never occurred to me to try to input the same number. Like what if, what if the hash rate grows at the exact same rate as the Bitcoin price? And so I had these like um, payouts. I had like three years of payouts in separate fields cascading down for the next three years, like monthly payouts. Mm. And then I input the CAGR of, of hash rate and then the same growth rate for Bitcoin price, meaning they cancel each other out. And then like all the columns updated and they were the same in dollar terms. Now, my yield was continually going down for three years. So that number is decreasing and the price of Bitcoin is going up at the same rate. Your actual yield in dollar terms stays completely constant. And I was like, that was such a mind-blowing thing. Like, oh, that's the whole, I'm seeing an expression of mining economics right now. <laughs> if those grow hand in hand, then in dollar terms, they're completely stable. <laughs> I'd love to see that spreadsheet. <laughs> I'll show it to you. I'll show it to you. That's, it's so cool. It's incredible. Um, um, okay, so so this is actually an appropriate transition to the theme of, today which is that humans i think have have been obsessed with automaticity this is one of the themes we mentioned at the top of this mm-hmm. whole topic and we have attempted with our money different really impressive forms of automatic adjustment mechanisms bitcoin is the latest and i think the greatest but all of these forms have broken in the past and And in a way, I think that this looking backwards and looking at this book is the best prism with which to look forward. It has revealed so many truths to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're drawn to the idea of removing discretion and therefore automaticity. But I feel like as Bitcoiners, we have to take special note of our desire for this Mm -hmm. and again of this Tocqueville quote that institutions depend on the mind of those that run them not the laws by which they're regulated and this is true of bitcoin as well and we can't fool ourselves into thinking that bitcoin is just so radical that it's right. immune from being overwritten by crisis
0: right right yeah that's a that's a kind of a chilling quote in a way if you really consider its implications yeah um and that's actually one thing that bitcoin I don't want to say overcomes, but it has a strong check against, right? That we've actually, again, we this term shelling point gets thrown around, but it's like we, um, I talked to Lowry yesterday, so I guess that's why I'm using it so, so much today. <laughs> um, the idea that we can align individual self-interest with the collective uh social institution, right? So the, the actual laws, this is like the consent of the governed type of thing that's embedded in in the US uh, constitution, that we, the incentives need to be properly aligned at the individual and the collective level. Otherwise, those that run the institution will bend those rules to favor their individual selves at the expense of those who cannot bend the rules. And Bitcoin has a strong seemingly has a very strong check against that, right if you try to basically i get to select what rules i'm going to abide by by running my own node and there's a strong center of gravity uh in a game theoretic sense in that the the rules people are running on bitcoin core all favor the individual right <laughs> can't confiscate it, can't counterfeit it hard cap et cetera um I just want to, I've probably read this quote before I read it. It's one of my favorite quotes, but it's just so in terms of this, I hope I can pronounce this right. Automaticity. Automaticity. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: This is, it seems like a universal impulse almost like it's pre human life. Even like it's almost, it almost is the algorithm of evolution itself is nature's just trying to economize in a way. And so I'll read this. Whitehead quote, he says, Civilization advances by extending the number of important operations we can perform without thinking of them. And that's by Alfred North Whitehead. And in my mind, like therein lies the economic value of ritualization, institutionalization, and automation. And so, this impulse that you described towards greater automaticity, it's very deep, right? It's like from a unicellular organism forward, we've been trying to automate these processes of life, cooperation, competition, et cetera.
1: And and I, I think that it is, we crave it. We crave it in our money, especially, and we haven't been able to achieve it yet. Every system we've designed and we've, you know, the gold, the gold standard was the most elaborate and had some really impressive automaticity built into it, mm-hmm. but it got broken also, and I, and I see those weaknesses in Bitcoin. And I, I've been trying to talk to them, talk about them more with Bitcoiners and it sometimes come off, comes off as maybe me fear mongering or fudding. I'm I am, you're, I'm, I'm saying this as someone who is 100% Bitcoin. I'm telling you, I see the possibility for the rules to be changed. I see that as a real problem. And, and i think i think and I say it because i would love to be able to part to, to to help inoculate the system against it but you you I don't think bitcoiners can ever assume that we've like the bitcoin is just so powerful and that the program is so strong and the protocol is so is so well dispersed that it's immune it's just it's a human institution and humans can change it and we have to we have to instill some sense of... Um, orthodoxy Mm. among the holders that outlasts us or else that that will be changed as well.
0: Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, the, the back to the automaticity thing, we crave it even in our households, right? <laughs> yeah. You. I mean, you've got, you know, some young ones running around i do as well to try and establish that daily routine and just the flow of actions that need to happen to get people where they want to go or need to go mm-hmm. um you know it, it's it's a constant struggle and it that that's kind of the microcosm of the socioeconomic macrocosm that we need dependable protocols right Through which to interact, that we can solve these recurrent problems we have. A big one being just the the economic problem itself, right? There's we all want more, but resources are finite. So how do we how do we get the most bang for the buck? Um, and that you know we it's interesting because it we're craving the very thing. That solves it, but there's also this weird temptation. Like when you create the institution that economizes human action, the people that govern that institution, back to your quote, it depends on the minds of those governors. Well, those governors are now in a position to abuse their power, effectively. (laughs) So it's this weird, like yin yang situation we've been caught in, and it seems like Bitcoin is a level up of some kind, right? Like it's it's a new social institution that people can't. As easily corrupt,
1: because the ability to alter the rules is what allows a group to stay in power.
0: Mm, There, uh,
1: any group's refusal to yield power um, is where those these rule changes come from. And so, Mm -hmm. if you if, if 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 we have built a system where you cannot contravene the rule set, then we will see regime changes. Because mm-hmm. people will, people just won't be qualified holders of Bitcoin. Right. And if they can't make more to stay in power, then they will not.
0: 100%. And then, yeah, so inflation itself is a violation of the rule of law, yeah. really. Yeah. And to protect Bitcoin from that, to your point, like the tech is there, but we have to go beyond that. We have to have an orthodoxy, as you said.
1: Yeah, because, you know, I mean... We're talking about the economics of miners. I, I I I see a very credible threat from the mining industry in the future, just because you look at all of the all of the capital. I mean, I'm I'm joining that I'm joining that force right now. I'm putting capital into putting some miners online, and again, you just stare at that issuance chart. You look at it's the year 2139, and you maybe you have a billion dollars of miners out there. Or, how I don't know what what the denomination will be in the year 2139. You have a trillion flarsecs or whatever the money is going to be then. (laughs) And you're like, oh, and the reward is one sat per block. And in the next, in this whole four year having epoch, there's going to be 210,000 sats total. I would support changing the issuance rate to make my miners more profitable for the next hundred years. I, I don't know why miners wouldn't support that. If the um, if the transaction, you know, if transactions aren't paying for that entire industry, mm. so I just think like we have to, you know, you have to. Just, I, I would just watch it. I would, I just be very wary of of that in the future. Yeah, that's it's complicated. It is complicated. <laughs> it's the most complicated discussion we have in yeah. Bitcoin, and I think it's 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 the threat that I see as like the. I, I think I think if we break. The 21 million cap. I think Bitcoin's over.
0: Agreed. It's. Yeah. I just think
1: it's 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 over in the in the same way that when Britain finally formally devalued the the pound in 1931, that was it. That was a sign mm-hmm. that Bit, that Britain was was it. It was they were done. Yeah. In the same way, if we if we let go of that, Bitcoin's done.
0: Yeah. Agreed. You know. Twenty one million is almost like the religious motif of Bitcoin, to some extent. If you break that, you've opened Pandora's box.
1: Mm-hmm. As long as you have people who are willing to run their own nodes, you know, then no matter who wants to fork off into something else, you can always keep the the twenty one million chain going. Mm-hmm. Maybe some very powerful exchanges won't call it Bitcoin. You know, I think there's a lot of forces. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a ton of forces that can't align against Bitcoin, and I'm and I'm just trying to like keep that idea alive because I I think to get cocky is to is to discount the threats we might face in the future, especially when faced mm. with a deflationary crisis. Mm. Because the, in, the 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 overwhelming power of the the entity in charge is to change the rules to stay in power. There's like there's been this debate in the macro community for. Forever, but especially in the last two years, deflation or inflation, deflation or inflation, which is it? And 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 it's a false argument. They're, they are totally, those are two forces that are forever interlinked in sequence. Deflation is the natural order of things, either because technology is so deflationary, a la the Jeff Booth hypothesis, or because credit always has to unwind if there's a fixed money supply at the core of it. And so because there will always be these, um, credit bubbles bursting there will always be deflation and then inflation is always the policy response from the people in charge that's just always deflation then a then an inflationary impulse then deflation then an inflationary impulse they're just they're just tied together
0: yes and specifically referring to inflation of the money supply and when the credit bubbles burst deflation of that money supply and this is an important point credit which is the you know one side of the coin of debt, right? You're either the borrower or the the creditor. That is money supply, right? When I extend you a loan, we have increased the money supply effectively. Um, and I just I want to read you know we we read this quote I think offline earlier, but um, you and I were having quite the discussion on inflation, deflation, how to position, et cetera, and um, as just a Testament, I think, to Thomas Jefferson's foresight. You know, written in this, presumably, I think this quotes from 17 or 1800s, um, and where we are, what we are actually witnessing today. I would just like to read this quote that I shared with you earlier. Jefferson wrote, "Quote: If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them." will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. Um,
1: that's that's the most modern quote I have ever heard. That is That has way more import and relevance right now than anything on Twitter. That is a fully prescient, that is the, they, he just summed it up. That is the problem, and we're living through this. We are living through the true psychological terror of an uh, of of a period between regimes, and yes. the, the psychological terror is that the fear of deflation and inflation at the exact same time. That is what that is. When you see these debates, are is it one or the other? No, it's both, and that's the problem. It 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 makes everyone crazy. You know it. Yes. It, it, I just. Talking to a friend yesterday, and he's like, you know, I had um, uh, he's he's retired. And he's like, man, I had him, I had a million bucks in the stock market, and I was like, I should sell some, but then it went up, and I was like, I'm screwed if I sell it, and I'm screwed if I don't sell it. You you don't know what to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, and these this psychological terror is what everyone's navigating. You know, attempting to trim the cells according to what they believe to be their own self-interest. And that's what drives people towards a shelling point. Ultimately, (laughs) it's like you end up in something like Bitcoin because you're like, okay, if there is arbitrary fiat currency supply inflation, great. I'm in a money nobody can inflate. If there's deflation, um, although I could be hurt in terms of purchasing power in the short term, right? These, These deflationary shocks, these credit bubbles bursting, you know the human response. Like, what do we do every time there's a deflationary shock? In the within the purview of the central bank, is we inflate we we resort to increasingly exotic policy measures to create new forms of of reflation, I guess you could say. So, Bitcoin is almost like this uh, protection from both both types of psychological terror
1: yeah and by the way, no one can arbitrarily deflate the supply of bitcoin either. Mm-hmm. that is, that's not talked about very much, but it's it's it's, it's right. immune from both
0: It's important yeah
1: but I think that we it's incumbent upon us as as like if we it, we're going to have to be very creative and think of an entirely new model for the economy or else it's going to be or, or else we're just going to end up with fiat currencies that a alo- that exist alongside bitcoin and then these credit boom and bust periods because because you you're right it it is the loaning of money it is the creation of credit which is actually the source of inflation mm-hmm. and then and, and and those always lead to panics and panics and then booms and and we'll just we'll just have to live with them and the reason why we Live with them now is that I mean the reason why everyone's like on such a hamster wheel is that we're all overburdened by debt and it is the price of our future debt that we're servicing mm-hmm. and so we we can't afford for our salaries to go down to nominal terms because we have to service our debt but if we didn't have debt then we could we could afford for our salary to go down as long as we were getting wealthier in real terms I mean imagine a bitcoin world imagine where you start a new job and your 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 salary your contract Uh, You negotiate at the start for your salary decreases. Your your employer has to come to you every three years and negotiate for your salary decrease because Bitcoin is becoming more valuable and they of course can't afford to pay you the same amount in Bitcoin and you accept the salary decrease because you know that in real terms you're actually still getting wealthier. Can you imagine that world?
0: That's crazy. Yeah, it's very interesting. It seems more likely to me that the nature of employment is going to change fundamentally. Um, you know, the, the sovereign individual goes into this a bit where in the digital age, everyone effectively becomes their own enterprise or everyone's a perpetual free agent, if you will, right? Just they analogize it to Hollywood, actually, that a group of contractors come together, they per, around a project, they produce a film, and then they they disband and go on, you know, separate to go uh, assemble themselves around other projects. There's not like this fixed long-term employment contract. Now it'll clearly that varies by industry, but it seems like with all of the liberation enabled in the digital age, that work will be more like that. Just on a, it'll be more project based versus company, long-term company based.
1: Right. And your, and your, your business model essentially for every individual is a growing equity share in your, in the life of projects you've worked in. And so every job, maybe it doesn't pay at all. You know, maybe everything you do in your whole life is entrepreneurial, but then you get a share, you get an equity share of its proceeds Mm -hmm. into retirement. And so you, by the time you're, you know, later in your productive years, you have like a trickle of income that is the income from the life share of your life's work. I think, exactly. I think that's an interesting model.
0: And well, this also speaks back to just gold or hard money or Bitcoin world. Like that to hold hard money is to effectively hold an equity share in all of the projects and all of the productivity and all the enterprises ever undertaken by human beings up to that point, right? That's what the purchasing power of the money is. It's like whatever the aggregate output of this economy is, I have some fixed share of the call option pool on it, something like that.
1: Well, this is why, this is, you just nailed like why, why the being part of the Bitcoin economy is, 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 um, why it spreads so fast. Because if you're in Bitcoin, you are incentivized to give away all of your knowledge for free to enrich to enrich every other holder of Bitcoin. Right. Because if, if the more people that share that knowledge, the, you get paid directly by the protocol for having right. made everyone smarter. Yes. Whereas if you are, you know, any, any um, uh, talking head or advisor or someone being interviewed in the fiat world, all they're all trying to funnel you to like their paid newsletter or their yeah. paid service. Why? Because the system that they specialize in Robs them for their time, and the yes. only way they can make ends meet is to make you pay them directly because they're they're all of their life's energy is being siphoned away. But Bitcoin pays you directly to to improve. So so the more the you make society wealthier, yeah. if you just extrapolate that out, the more you work to make society wealthier, you get paid back directly in the value of the money that you already hold.
0: It's incredible, and this is speaking resoundingly to the importance of properly aligned incentives. Because in Bitcoin, effectively, I think what you're saying and what I'm understanding here is the richer the world gets, the richer you get. Yeah. <laughs> and right. fiat's the reverse, right? It's like um, kind of the Jeff Booth thesis, like the richer the world gets, well, to maintain inflation and this implicit default via inflation you now have to expand the money supply even more, right? You can't let prices decline; uh, otherwise, it just crushes the debt structure.
1: It scares the, the 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 shape of the debt structure, and that scares me. How understanding how it works still scares me. I'm still, I still really struggle to understand how it works, and then the ability to really clearly envision how it will work with Bitcoin in the future, given mm. that I think that credit and debt will always exist. How will that work? I, I'm still really, I don't know. I don't have a clear vision on it.
0: Yeah. Agreed. This whole idea of, you know, gold as money is really premised on the concept of final settlement, uh, which we could say is like the transfer of equity, like right? The transfer of absolute ownership with no liability attached to it uh whereas but again that was expensive to do with gold because of gold's physicality like it, it all comes back to gold's physicality all its drawbacks which bitcoin obviously mm-hmm. solves and then to augment gold's limited transactability we then needed to establish debt debt frankly deferred settlement so instead of final settlement we have deferred settlement um but that comes with all these adverse situations in regards to counterparty risk and trust and corruption etc so maybe we could talk about the importance of final settlement
1: yeah it's like why i guess like it seems intuitively obvious why you'd have a, a money that you can't change we've talked about like sort of like the power implications but it's sort of worth asking the obvious question like why have why have a final settlement mechanism that you can't change what's the point of it and I feel like you explored some of the more prosaic aspects of this in tyranny of time scarcity I mentioned that essay a lot because it really impacted me but it's a gold essentially is a contract with your counterparty in the future or as um, a term I found from another good book a pre-commitment mechanism Mm. Um, and I want to I'll just share this passage. It's from a book called Gold in the Modern World Economy. Um, Assume that the monetary authority has announced at the beginning of the year a rate of monetary growth consistent with zero inflation. Assume further that the population believes the announcement, and that announcement is incorporated into the wage, bargaining, and other contracts that are binding over the whole year. In this circumstance, the authorities. In the absence of a pre-commitment mechanism, knowing that workers believe their stated intentions and have already made their contracts, they now have an incentive to create a monetary surprise, which is to follow an expansionary monetary policy to either reduce unemployment or stimulate the economy or to capture senior age revenue. However, the workers with rational expectations will take account of the government's actions and their behavior in the next year when the new contracts are formed and they will demand higher wages and prices. And this will in turn lead to higher inflation and then eventually a return basically to the original level because all the benefits are gone. And then and it, um, that will then, then we'll sort of level off back where we were. So I'm gonna pause. There's, there's like one line in this in this quote. Sometimes I pull quotes with lines that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And go to the last line, a credible pre-commitment mechanism, such as a rule that prevents the authorities from altering the monetary growth from its pre-announced path by preventing the government from cheating, can preserve long-term price stability. So like now we've encountered this concept of price stability in a way that I understand and is favorable. It's like, I've negotiated a contract. I want to know it's going to be worth the same amount in terms of the equity of society's production. And that so no one can cheat in the meantime. Contracts are like the fundamental element of business, and if you want to enter into a forward-looking contract, you need to know that the price of the payment is going to be just as valuable, and that it hasn't going isn't going to be diluted to your detriment in the meantime. That to me yeah. is the business and business, like the the entrepreneurs' calculation. Entrepreneurs require this calculation to make their judgments about the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. This remind I just spoke with the author of a book called The Brain yesterday. His name is David Eagleman, mm-hmm. and um, we, Preston Pish and I, did a series on the the book The Brain, but he was in his book, he talks about a Ulysses contract, which, um, you know, Ulysses was the guy that tied himself to the mast. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't uh, give in to the temptation of siren songs. So there is this, this is almost like the trick to civilization in a way that we need to be able to create mechanisms in the present that bind our future selves to you know, rationally decided actions. And again, at the micro level, again, he was talking about this at the individual level in terms of the brain, it's like to have a gym buddy or something, right? Where Wednesday yeah. morning you wake up, you don't want to go to the gym, but if you've got a friend that you've committed to meet there at 10 a.m., then you're much more likely to follow through given that accountability mechanism. Um, and in the the socioeconomic sphere, it seems like We're kind of doing the opposite right now. Like every time there's a problem, we effectively break commitment to the integrity of the dollar. (laughs) It's like, oh, there's economic turmoil. We'll just print more money, print more money. So it's it's a constant abdication. Whereas Bitcoin, I mean, maybe this is a useful framing. Maybe I'm stretching the analogy here, but it's kind of like the ultimate Ulysses contract in that we're committed to this, right? We're committed to a fixed money supply. So we can't just... Print money, which is we know uh, short term, temporary stimulant effect on spending, investment, et cetera, but it creates long term consequences. It's very much like a drug. You know, it's like we're, we're, we incur an injury and then we're taking this analgesic, but the analgesic has some side effects that we're, longer term side effects that we're ignoring. But Bitcoin kind of gets us off of that path. And it's like, no, you need to actually deal with the problems as they come up you can't just paper over them
1: i mean the the, the the biggest i think like one of the biggest defaults in all of monetary history was the the abrogation of the gold clause in uh when roosevelt took office and and devalued the dollar well all of these it was sort of boilerplate at that time to denominate contracts in gold say okay well here's what you have to pay me and if and 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 it has to be worth this much in gold that was like in most contracts mm-hmm. and so this went to the supreme court after Roosevelt devalued the gold because people were like well then pay me in gold and the supreme court this is actually really interesting the supreme court upheld the policy of devaluing the dollar but it didn't give congress the ability to nullify all those contracts but that was the net effect was that congress has the ability to nullify every business contract in existence not there between parties that didn't involve the government right the gold clause in all contracts was then nullified well um that's that sucks because yeah. that's <laughs> sure that was that was the point of that clause. That's why it was in there.: You know,
0: it's just like the relationships lose integrity. I, I'm struggling to how to phrase this. There's this threat of force frankly from on high that then disintegrates all of the commercial relationships that don't even involve the the right. source of the threat at all
1: right right that, totally outside of it
0: yeah it's it's um
1: it's really bad i don't know like it's it's, just... it's it's the total abandonment of property rights it's a total yes. destruction of property rights
0: exactly and property rights are the bedrock of civilization
1: gold was gold was this like incontrovertible hold your feet to the fire system but we as a society because of the centralization of gold developed these contingency clauses that allowed yeah. governments like special powers to to circumvent the rules right and the original contingency clause was war right and in wartime governments could suspend convertibility right and the rule the rule worked because people understood like well this is war is an existential threat and we know that once the war is over there will be like a slight period of adjustment but the government's going to have to follow a deflationary policy to resume payments at the original rate. So this gets back to convertibility being the ultimate check. If if, if, If society is going to demand that at some point the money has to be convertible at the old rate, then the government must pay for what they've done with deflationary policy at some point. And so in that way, you know, the gold standard, the convertibility standard directly incentivized war. By giving governments this contingency clause and then the contingencies started to expand well okay so so we all understand i mean and by the way governments like adhered to this for a long time like you know coming out of the napoleonic war the, the, the 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 british held the price of gold for 200 years they actually were able to use the contingency and then back out but now look where we are well okay um uh, a banking crisis does that qualify as a contingency? Okay, a full of a, a pandemic does that qualify as a contingency? Seems like everything qualifies as a contingency now. So there's no pre-commitment mechanism. There's no commitment mechanism, and it leaves people feeling really adrift financially.
0: Yeah. Yes, and it being ad- left adrift financially it percolates up through everything else, right? We're just, the culture goes awry, et cetera. And I think the bottom of it is this, that we live in a world of scarce resources, as we've said, we can resolve disputes over those resources where there is more demand for a thing than there is supply of a thing. We can resolve it one of two ways. And it's either contract Right, we have some property right or a dispute resolution mechanism, rule of law, contract law. All of these these protocols for peace, uh, peacefully resolving the dispute according to fair rules, or via conflict. Right, we can fight over it. And when you remove the option of contract or you start to disintegrate contract, you inevitably push people into conflict. Like There's no other choice. It really is one of the two, right? Contract Mm -hmm. or conflict. So if you violate contract, well, you end up in conflict. Surprise, surprise. And I mean, I guess we maybe kind of consider Bitcoin the reverse in a way. It's like it makes conflict so uneconomic because it's hard to, you can't break the property right in Bitcoin with conflict. So it kind of forces you into contract which is a nice externality, um, but this other idea of the government having these, uh, what, what are they, contingency clauses, I read this quote, one, I'll paraphrase, if you have a clause that gives government additional powers in a state of emergency, then that's only going to lead to the government creating emergencies <laughs> to consolidate power. Obviously.
1: Yeah.